Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 9 for the School of Unlearning podcast. We're joined here today with uh, former Google executive and author Mo Gaudet. Mo has over 27 years of experience in the world of engineering and technology and brings an incredibly brilliant and empathetic uh, brain to the podcast today and an incredible story as a human. I actually heard about Mo um, about a year ago through a couple of friends of mine who saw him speak in New York City and then Mo actually asked me to be on his podcast, which was a really cool honor. And so go over to uh, Slow Mo, which is the name of his podcast, uh, and check it out. Slow Mo is his podcast, and it's actually top 10 for mental health worldwide. And he pumps out incredible interviews with great people doing amazing work. On this episode for episode nine, we are talking about his journey to becoming who he is today, the losses that shaped his life, including the loss of his son, Ali, and the way that he has used loss as a way to be a driving force for good in the world. You know, as a former Google executive, doing anything for 1 million or even 10 billion people is something that he was kind of educated and um, trained to do. And so his mission now is to bring happiness and um, human well-being to the planet. And he's doing that. So he has two books that we'll talk about. One is Solve for Happy. And the one we get into in the later part of this episode is called Scary Smart. And this is a really, really important uh, podcast because it's talking about the merging of consciousness with AI, artificial intelligence. And they absolutely do merge. And I actually find out in this podcast that Mo thinks that, um, you know, machines are cute and they're adorable when they learn new things, which is just kind of mind blowing to me. It's not my world, but he makes an incredible case for why we actually hold the key to shaping technology and artificial intelligence and that technology does not have to own us. And so, um, this is a call to action, this podcast episode on what it really means to be human and how we actually make that happen day to day. So thanks for listening and enjoy this podcast. Hi, Mo. Happy Monday. So, Mo, I've, uh, you know, I came across your work uh, actually over a year ago. Some of my friends saw you speak in New York City and um, they were really amazed by just the breadth and depth of like human spirituality you bring to the tech and engineering industry. And now, obviously, with the work you're doing outside of that, too, with Solve for Happy and your new book. And you graciously invited me on your podcast months yeah. ago. So I... I feel like we are fast friends and I can't wait for the day I get to actually have coffee with you in real life. But uh, It will um, happen very soon. So, you, you, you did that's amazing, right. by the way, on my podcast. I, I don't know if I ever told you, but uh, uh, you, you, you know, of course, podcasts, guests that come earlier get more downloads, but you might be one of our top 10 of all time. We will see. We will see. Not that far, as a matter of fact. So I hope it will happen. Nice. Uh -huh. Nice, nice. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I feel like this this conversation will be sort of a continuum of that in some ways. Uh, what I shared in your podcast was a lot of my sort of like becoming mm. and unlearning. And it really helped inspire me to to launch this podcast. You know, when I was going through COVID, we had talked about our shared experiences in COVID. I kind of thought like, create the thing that you need most. And at the time during COVID, like I needed meaningful conversations and people and friends. Mm -hmm. And and so that's part of the reason I created the School of Unlearning podcast, because I felt like 
all of us are just reprogramming our way of showing up in the world. And that very much aligns with, again, your two books, Solve for Happy and Scary Smart, which we're going to get into. Um, So Mo, you're my guest, and I want to learn a little bit more about you growing up. Part of the unlearning process, as, as I call adulting, is really helping us understand our our programming from a young age, who we were when we were young, who in, who was influential for us when we were young, and how that shaped our core learnings. And then there's always these pivotal, juicy moments where we had to unpack it all. So uh, I know what you do now, and your audience knows what you do now, but I'd love to have you tell the story of life for you growing up. That's quite interesting, actually. I, I um, had a lot of my positive influences. I never really thought deeply about that, actually. A uh, lot of my positive influences and lots of my negative influences uh, took place, I would probably say, in my teens. Uh, I'm a bit of an unusual mix, I think. I'm a very serious engineer, mathematician, physicist, who is, I, I, I would say, very uh, spiritual, even very religious in a very unusual way. I don't follow a specific religion, but uh, I follow a, a fruit salad approach to picking the best of all of them. Uh, like that and uh, and uh, yeah and i so many gold nuggets all over the place really but 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 i have to say i have been highly conditioned and at very young age by those two mainstreams i think the, the the mainstream of science uh you know where i really dug very deep into physics at a very very young age i was reading quantum physics at age 11 i was uh, understanding the mathematics of quantum physics in my late teens. Uh, and, and at the same time, I grew up in Egypt, a highly conformative society, uh, with a lot of emphasis on religion. So in, in, in the Islamic world, what might appear exotic and different to other, uh, other societies is that religion is not separable from life in any possible way. Even in the language mm-hmm. we use, there are religious terms, there are you know, mm-hmm. religious expectations on everything. Like literally, the re- you know, the reason you visit your uh, aunt is because of, you know, that being correct religiously. And if she's annoying like hell, you still go visit her because that's what the religion tells you and so on. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. highly, highly conformative. And I mm-hmm. was highly religious at a very young age. And then by age 16... I ended up saying, if I'm going to visit, you know, spend my life in something so conformative, uh, I might as well debate it. And so I sort of announced myself to myself only as agnostic and did the other side of things, which I think were very, was very unusual. I did what I call the mathematics of the divine. Uh, I tried Mm. it in a very um, mathematical way to calculate not if God exists or not. I don't call it God anymore. I think that's a brand reserved to the religious establishment. But basically, mm-hmm. I, I attempted to say there is no scientific way to prove that a divine entity exists. And there isn't a scientific way to prove that it doesn't. Okay, And in those cases, what you need to do as a mathematician is to calculate probabilities. And I sort of did that in a way that convinced me that there is something more to our existence and being than just uh, what is told by science, okay? Uh, what is told by science because of the scientific method is limited to what we can see, perceive, and measure, and repeatedly generate, okay? Uh, uh, but, but that's not, you know, that doesn't apply to things that we know exist in our life 
such as love, for example, which you cannot really, really perceive with instruments. You can feel it, but you cannot perceive it with instruments. You cannot measure it accurately and so on. And I think that was, if you want, my first point of unlearning was to, is to, is to really, really revisit everything I was conditioned to believe in before that mm-hmm. uh, and, and start to go on a, a journey that I believe was all about questioning and not debating. I don't really debate in the term, in the right meaning of the term, but really questioning everything that I'm told, especially by myself. Uh, yeah. And, and, so and, when you were when you were growing up, may I ask, what were some of the things that you were conditioned to learn that didn't sit well with you that made you feel like squirmish, like I need to unpack this? Um, lots of what we all get conditioned to that success is more important than happiness. Uh, that uh, you know, um, sort of a, a strive for a, a, in a religious society. This is typical everywhere in Christianity and Islam and everywhere that uh, a strive for the afterlife contradicts and is more important than a strive for this life on, and being present mm-hmm. and alive. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, being a Middle Eastern man, and I tend to be reasonably manly, uh, not ashamed to say that, but at the time, the definition of what manly was uh, con- completely contradicts what my you know, definition of what the masculine and the feminine are today and how much of me is masculine and how much of me is feminine and you know which of them should I embrace more in which situations and so on. That was a complete mm. mess up, if you want. And, and I think yeah. most men around the world, sa- sadly, I would say even many women around the world, again, men and women is a biological definition, but there is a statistical correlation that those with uh, feminine body parts tend to have more feminine qualities, if you want, or female body parts tend to have more feminine qualities. Uh, and and I, I have to say this, I only, only managed to get a grip on and an understanding of in my late 40s, believe it or not. I'm writing a book on the topic now, but, uh, mm. but it's something I was so differently conditioned for when I was mm. younger. Uh, and, and, you know, to to actually tell openly to the world now that I believe in my method that I have developed of measuring feminine and masculine, that I am 58% feminine, is actually quite mm. something for a man from the Middle East who's bald with a beard, right? It's, it just doesn't. And, and I, you know, I realized later that I also am equipped with a very uh, manly voice, which, you know, I, I always listened to myself and thought I was a little girl. Turns out that, you know, that contradiction, I think, was one of my biggest biggest hurdles to overcome and i will tell you openly Lisa, it was the the, the 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 probably the biggest empowerment moment of my life the, the idea of being able to overcome that i was definitely wow. um i was definitely conditioned heavily with a view of spirituality that was very enlightening and very empowering islam is so beautiful when you know it from uh, from the inside but it was also very limiting and very misleading because of the dogma and the do's and don'ts and so on and so mm-hmm. forth, which I which I believe was a big part of my conditioning. Um, yeah, and 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 basically the idea of uh, of how to live in general, I think, for a a, a man uh, who is very driven and very left-brained and organized, I think, was completely wrong. But that wasn't from my childhood. That, I think, was came from my early years of working at IBM and Microsoft and so on. 
and you know mm-hmm. all of these were revisited i think later in life but uh, but most of them were so heavily entrenched that they had a, a dent and a cost and, a, and an impact on my life wow thank you for sharing those are some incredible nuggets the one thing i i re- that really stood out to me is when you said part of the contradiction in the religion that you were raised in and the religions around you was that the strive for the afterlife really conflicted with the ability to be present and enjoy this life. Um, or, you know, the, the strive to whatever it looked, whatever the resume we had to build to be great in the afterlife really conflicted with the present moment. How do you kind of grapple with that now? Does that show up for you these days in how you approach Uh, life, unlearn? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if people who are very religious will accept this. I think it's all one life, okay? That that, that this is mm. um, that this is one extension, one one level of a very very deep game, okay? Uh, that, and yeah. that deep game doesn't start with birth and doesn't mm. end with death. That we are mm-hmm. that we are uh, before, during, and after our physical journey into this physical universe, and mm-hmm. and when you see it that way. Uh, in in many actual in many spiritual faiths, actually the interesting side is that they eventually tell you about something that's called the path in Buddhism or Taoism. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that's mm-hmm. in in Islam is defined as the straight path, which basically is a bit of um, uh, how do I say this? A, a, a bit of a directional orientation that you set yourself in this physical life that goes with you and extends with you into the rest of your life, which is not just physical. And so in a, mm-hmm. in a very interesting way, if you live a life of deprivation in this life, restriction, uh, control freakishness, uh, uh, you know, um, ego, because I have to say with tons of respect that there is an unusual element of ego in, in religion, which is I'm right and the other religion is wrong. Where does yeah. that come from? How can how can you be fear when, when we're all <laughs> yeah when we're all one when we're all one? How can you see it that way, right? And right. and anyway, so 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 when you really see it that way, I I think my daughter taught me a lesson which I think was so profound for me uh, when she basically told me, look, I've looked at all that we're told, if you want, and she says, my belief is the following. She she said. We are a drop of an ocean. Each and every one of Mm -hmm. us is a drop of an endless ocean that we can term as the divine. That ocean is shapeless and formless for our physical perception to be able to grasp. Uh, But that ocean uh, um, has its characters in you, okay? Uh, Mm -hmm. So you you are of the ocean, if you want. You're of the divine. Yet you, get, you mix with the physical. You know, your, your, your physical form then becomes part of you. So your spirit, your essence, call it what you want, your and mm-hmm. your, your soul, right? Uh, it mixes with that physical element of you, and together they create the avatar that is you in this life, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and so that avatar is sort of flip-flopping, if you want, in, in, in electronics between the two sides. It wants to elevate and purify itself so that it's much more of the divine. And it also wants to live, live and take itself into the material world that it's in. Okay? Mm. And so, 
in, in, her, in her story, which I love. She says, those of us who manage to rid themselves of, of the attachment to the physical live fully, but they're not attached, mm -hmm. okay? As mm -hmm. the Sufis would, would call it, to die before you die, to, to really right. give up on the physical while you're still alive. Those are so yeah. so like the divine, almost godlike, because they're not owned by the physical anymore, that when they leave this life, they end up merging back with the divine and becoming a god, okay? And mm -hmm. that's what some religions define as heaven. So, so the idea mm -hmm. of you taking yourself out of this physical and being able to have the power of a divine, create whatever you want, this is heaven. And then those who don't, uh, which I think some religions contradict on, will come back uh, to, 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 mm. to play that game again, if you want, to try that level mm. of the game one more time. And in her funny way, my daughter is an incredibly funny young lady, and basically she says, and this is hell. This is hell. This is where we live. You know, all of the suffering, all of the, of the clinging, all of the, you know, this is, this is what you could define as hell because this is much less than being part of the divine, Okay. And I, I like that. I don't. I have no scientific proof of that whatsoever, or religious proof, by the way. No, nobody told that story before, uh, at least not to me. But it must be part of other religions. But anyway, to me, this is an interesting definition of a reason to live. Okay, mm -hmm. a reason to live in a way where you can get yourself to divine qualities while you're in this physical form. I think that process of seeking that journey of enlightenment, if you want, is a worthwhile way of living, okay? It's much more enjoyable uh, than buying another car, if you ask me. Uh, and so this is where I am. This is where, why now I, I'm much more interested in the idea of can I be like what I should be in the afterlife here? And so if I can do that, maybe, yeah. Well, also, too, if you are whatever that vision is of you in the afterlife, um, wherever that space and time is, if those may, may not even exist, right? You know, that unlocks your your soul and your spirit's capacity to to touch more people's lives, to actually be more human connected versus like ego, you know, totally. egocentric yeah. and pushing people away. I mean, it's it's sort of like a recipe I, I, totally. for making the best of life. To totally, absolutely, and and I, you know, I, I I don't use the term afterlife. I think it's it's the wrong term. I think, as I said, it's one continuum of life. Huh? Uh, but but that idea of of being part of the ocean is a massive reminder that we are all the same. We're all one. That your 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 soul is my soul. Right, mm -hmm. and and what an interesting way of connecting, huh? what an interesting way of of uh, of of feeling that you are part of me and I'm part of you. And I think we felt this the first time we spoke that you know we're so mm -hmm. easily able to connect hmm? because if we let go of our differences, where you grew up, where I grow up, you know our gender, our age, our whatever, right? It, you know backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my love for mathematics, which I think is a creepy thing. And, you know, it's all of that. If you if you let all of that yeah. go, then right. very, very deep inside, we're all the same. And we're all one. Right. And I think that's a beautiful notion to think about. Right.
So as you're talking about this, I keep having these flashbacks to a recent experience I had in Costa Rica where I did for the first time sort of like a guided, um, intentional psychedelic experience. I did it twice, mm. actually. And mm. in that experience, I, I had an intention. My intention was to connect with my dad when he was younger, when he was a strong, verbal, you know, uh, charismatic, able man. Because I miss that, right? It's mm. been 10 years since I've felt that. And when I did mm. these uh, mu these mushrooms with some friends, again, we like wrote down our intentions, we fasted, we did it to connect, not to escape, right? And so what I what I yeah. experienced in that was I saw my dad's soul. Um, I saw him and it was just this like aura of orange and warmth. And he just kind of kept telling me like, we're never alone, we're never alone. And that there's so mm. much more and there's so much more and we don't even know yet, but there's so much more. And so I... After those experiences, I felt less afraid for him, less afraid for me with his next journey in his continuum, because I do agree with you that it's a continuum, right? Like, we're just going to keep going in some capacity, and it's beautiful. And so I, I just, I'm curious if you've ever, uh, you know, when you spoke about this sort of oneness in this this human body, that's the, the moment on psychedelics, some moments in sports, some moments in love and, and intimacy I've had that sense of supreme oneness with people's souls but have you had experiences with like psychedelics or like moments in that in this human form where you really felt that connected to the soul and to others uh I will tell you this moment when you're speaking right now is one of those moments so so if you check what I just posted on Instagram okay I posted you're not alone Okay. Yes, you just yeah. said you ju you just said that you had that experience with your uh, uh, with your uh, dad in a psychedelic experience. I also I, so I wanted to post this in the morning, but then I had to rush and host uh, an amazing, amazing human being on my podcast, uh, Dr. Lisa Miller. And Dr. Lisa is a uh, a neuroscientist, a, a psychologist who is uh, who basically wrote a couple of books. One of them is called The Awakened Brain. And she talks about that mm -hmm. idea of, uh, of uh, awakened awareness. And her, the entire conversation was about, you're not alone. You are not alone. Mm -hmm. So this is the third time mm -hmm. today within a scope of four hours where my entire yes. day is about you're not alone. Believe it or not, yeah. I swear to God, I'm not making this up. I woke up in the morning. Uh, I, I, I'm very jet lagged. I arrived from, uh, from LA yesterday to Europe. And so I woke up a little late and I have a very special relationship with my son, my, my late son, that is built around the numbers 411. Okay, so mm -hmm. for, I can tell you the story, but it's a long story. Uh, so I woke up and it was 1114. Like a few minutes after I woke up, it was 1114. So I normally speak to my son in songs, in music. So I said to myself, mm -hmm. okay, I've noticed it's 1114. Let me play a random song on Spotify. And the song was, mm. You're Not Alone. Okay? So this is the mm. fourth time today uh, where I get that experience that science will tell you doesn't exist. Ah, it's just coincidence. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. but, the, but the truth is, um, we uh, tend to filter our capability. So, so, so I, you know, again, I, I spoke about the idea of the masculine and the feminine. And, and we have created a hyper-masculine world where... Linear mm -hmm. thinking, which is a very masculine quality. Linear thinking is I think about things one step at a time and then solve this and then do that and so on. 
Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, discipline and, and, and organized, uh, uh, you know, execution and doing, if you want, is the world we've created. Hmm? And because we've created that, so many of us are so blind folded, almost like a horse running the race doesn't see on its, you know, on the sides because of the, uh, of the, uh, blind, the blinders on its eyes, uh, seeing in one direction, while, while in reality, the life itself is talking to us, okay? And the only way you can, grasp, you can grasp life as it's talking to you is if you actually jump into your feminine brain, which has intuition, it has creativity, it has mm -hmm. sensations and feelings and emotions. All of those are created as feminine qualities. Now, when we go for psychedelics, what happens, and, and there is a ton of research that supports that, is that it doesn't enhance your mind's abilities. It actually limits your brain's abilities. So, so weed, for example, mm -hmm. is known to reduce your perception of the passage of time. So basically, mm -hmm. when, when you're not stressed by time, you can chill. Hmm? Uh, you know, it, mm -hmm. you know some, some of the characteristics of disabling that annoying left brain that's constantly trying to tell us to do things is what gets us into our feminine brain that is able right. to perceive the whole world. The best, the best piece you absolutely have to see is the TED Talk by Dr. Jill Balti-Taylor. Okay? Yes, yes, so, uh, totally. She's and, my favorite. And I, again, I, absolutely breathtaking. I cry every time. Who cries on a TED Talk, right? But she, Me, she's actually. that neuroscientist <laughs> and she... Yeah, um, and she and she's 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 a really dear 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 friend. As a matter of fact, she's running a free seminar in a, in a couple of days. Uh, but it will be late for people to hear that. Uh, you know, she's a very dear friend, and and basically she's a neuroscientist that that um, mm -hmm. that um, you know was so analytical and left-brained, and then had a brain stroke that disabled right. Right. disabled her uh, her uh, her uh, left brain, and so she lived entirely in her right brain. Je, I'm, mm. I, I don't want to sp spoil it to you, but, uh, you know, please oh, no, go and I, listen to it. Oh, no, I'm very familiar and, with her work. I, no, I, I mean, read all of her I mean, books for our and, listeners. Oh, yeah, guess, yeah, yeah. For our right. listeners. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it, it, basically, she ends the experience. She describes the experience of living fully in her, in her right brain without the filters of the left brain. And at the end of it, she says, I have found nirvana. I, and I cry mm -hmm. every time mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it, truly what she's describing to me is nirvana, right? So what we do in psychedelics is we, is we enable that, is we, um, is we in, disable the parts of our brain that are highly annoying and open up for other experiences. I have to admit, though, I have never made that step, even though I promise you after I give talks in public or whatever, people would walk to me and say, I have to take you to an ayahuasca trip. I, I will pay for yeah. everything. But I, right. I, I sort of have to listen to what you will say afterwards, right? And I say no. I say no for a very interesting reason. For, so far, I've been able to discover some of that interesting way of managing your brain capability and tuning into the parts that you want to tune in without the aid of psychedelics. And so accordingly, mm -hmm. I'm able to go back in my books and describe clearly how you can achieve it without psychedelics, right? Right. And, and, and because I have that interesting way of doing it so far, I'm saying to myself, okay, keep going that path until it gets blocked. And when it gets blocked, maybe we will take other aids, right? 
But mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not I'm not against psychedelics as a matter of fact, but I am very pro psychedelics with the kind of intention that you had. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so 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 the other technique that I tried many times and that works miracles is shamanic breathing. If you've ever, if I'm sure you've tried mm-hmm. that. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so the idea of of hyper oxygenating your system, uh, and mm-hmm. and again, I I believe it disables parts of our brains in ways that give you amazing insights and amazing, uh, mm. you know, perception of of the reality of our world. Mm. I love that you bring up um, Dr. Bolter, Jill Jill Bolte Taylor, because um, I think I found her TED Talk right when it came out. It was probably like seven or eight years ago, or maybe nine years ago at this point, but. Um, mm. Ever since then, she's been on my radar. And what I love about her most recent book, and to everyone listening, definitely go read her book, Stroke of Insight, and the next one, Whole Brain Living. I love, by the way, when you interviewed her, I really appreciated, you know, your questions and the conversation you both had. It was was actually a really emotional interview. And I I guess I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about the brain and the feminine and and getting in this space. Cause I think that like you know, it sounds like to me that your life growing up was very much in the sciences and the maths, and that allowed you to find what I would call a level of ground under your feet. It was a way mm. that you saw the world. It was your lens. It was how you stood out or stood in, and it gave you a space to show up. And and though at some point, it sounds like you were always deeply connected deeply spiritual and obviously you had religious influence you had a sense of awareness of your place on this planet and then the two merged when you started to um, not only work for google x and everything like that i'm sure it merged a long time ago but you said at age 16 i guess i'm curious like you know when we think about dr bolte taylor's work she talks a lot about the right brain being Mm. this like place of nirvana and that that was great. She decided to come back though and use her left brain so that she could archetype her way to get the world to be more peaceful. Mm-hmm. Do you sort of see your work that in, in a similar vein in that you very much see the world through formulas and equations and, and getting people to a certain place of understanding and buy-in and execution, but you're doing it through a very spiritual lens. You know, your, your mission isn't to make more money. Your mission is to get people to, um, to this place of, of, flow state of living in oneness yeah um do you see your work and her work somewhat parallel oh, absolutely absolutely and I, I, I think the great news for our world is that there are so many of us now okay yeah uh, the, the, the the truth is so so i have i have a an unusual uh i i wouldn't say i'm good but i an unusual uh, level of mathematics uh understanding of mathematics so so ma- mathematics are a language you know it's a, it's a language it's if you yeah. i i probably speak better mathematics than i speak english and 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 when you when you see the world through that lens you see a very unusual uh, view of life okay that i've been incredibly blessed to see and and uh, having said that most who are uh, led to go deep into that path of the academic side, if you want to become a scientist, I did not become a scientist. Uh, uh, you know, basically, are sort of forbidden to venture into what the scientific method uh, uh, refuses to acknowledge. Okay, so 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 basically, uh, you know, if you if you try to understand the world through through the lens of science, you're not allowed to look at the metaphysical at all. You're not allowed to acknowledge mm. that there is a soul. You're not allowed to mm. acknowledge that there is anything beyond the physical because, yeah, it's like 
you know, if if you if you go and work in a place and and they say, look, if you want to work here, you have to wear a white shirt. You wear a white shirt. You know, this is how it is. Okay, and yeah. and yeah. and for a, a lot of a lot of very respectful scientists will tell you. And yes, by the way, this other side is the work of philosophy. I I call I I think that spirituality is the philosophy of the metaphysical. Okay, so mm-hmm. so when you really think about uh, about that, you you start to find that there are very few of us uh, that actually are able to go out there and say, hey, by the way, I really know science and and you know in my case mathematics and engineering to a level that I that would give me credibility. Okay, uh, but I also believe in spirituality. You know, uh, Jill is a great example from a neuroscientist. Mm-hmm. You can take Rick Hansen. You can take you know so many so many others out there are starting to venture into into that space and say, uh, you know, hold on, hold on. Uh, there is a lot that is exactly the same when you look at it from the lens of science and the lens of uh, spirituality. Uh, but but we have to be a little more open minded around the dogma. The religion, mm-hmm. if you want, of this of the scientific method, okay, and mm-hmm. and the scientific method, if you don't mind me saying, is a form of religion, okay. It's this mm-hmm. is exactly how you need to do things if you want to belong to this group, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I I have enjoyed, I have disabled, no, not suppressed, suppressed that side of me for the first maybe ten years of my professional career, uh, and and it led me to depression. Uh, just I'm being yeah. very open about this. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the fact that you live only for the physical material world uh, eventually will lead you there because the, the, the physical world is never going to yield. It's never going to yield. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm now, I'm now in Slovenia today, uh, even though my ticket and my hotel was book, booked for Berlin, uh, uh, you know, when I got on the flight. Or, or when I actually got to the check-in counter. Hmm? Now, if you, if right. you resist life, you know, I, I had my I had my boarding pass. My my bag was tagged. Was being placed on the conveyor belt, and then people said, uh, "No, no, hold on. Germany changed its mind. If you're not double vaccinated, you can't go in. So, are you double vaccinated? No. So you you don't you can't go to Germany. And literally, that was 25 percent 25 minutes before the flight closed. And I said, "Okay, so what do I do now? Very, very, very happily and very accepting of mm-hmm. the way life was." knowing for right. sure that something amazing is going to work out, right? And eventually, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, I said, if I bought another ticket from, I was on Turkish Airlines, if I bought another ticket from Istanbul to another place, would you let me on this flight and then check me into the other one? And they said, well, we don't normally do that, but you're so nice, we're going to try to help you, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I ended up in Slovenia and Ljubljana. I don't know if you've ever been. It's such an amazing place amazing wonderful people it's such a beautiful little city uh, and i you know again part of luck uh, people who know me know that i really love coffee i just literally go out of the hotel go two doors down there is a coffee uh, a cafe a, a real real uh, you know crafts place where people are so that ter- turns out there is an underground five cafes that are really about coffee in Lublin. and i went into the first one he wow. recommended the other four Look, look at what kind of experience I'm up for here, right? Just yeah, simply yeah. because I followed what life told me. And what life told me was very simple. Hey, by the way, not Berlin this time. Okay? It's as simple as that. Hmm? And how That's many it, of yeah. us resist because, yeah, because of our masculine, again, one of the characters of the masculine is strength. Hmm? We mm-hmm. overdo that and become uh, uh, forceful. 
become mm -hmm. you know one one of the of the of the traits of the masculine is uh, linear thinking overdo that and you become stubborn okay mm -hmm. uh, you know and 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 so accordingly being data driven overdo that and you're no longer listening to the universe now if we're able to enable those part of us hmm, every single one of us is born with both and Jill's work yeah. is to say, hey, I'm not saying live outside your left. I'm coming back here to, yeah. to, to use my left to enlighten those who are stuck in the left only. Okay? Mm -hmm. Follow me because each and every one of us is, is an interesting, unique blend of those qualities. Okay? Uh, each and every one of us has, you know, there are, I, I believe, and I, I'm writing about the topic, that there are no two humans that are the same. Hmm? You know, when, when we try to, uh, you know, to identify uh, he's feminine and she's feminine or he's masculine and she's or, she, or she's masculine, that, that doesn't exist. You know, yeah. each and every one of us is a different, unique combination. Maybe one of us is more empathetic than the other, but a little more linear thinker than the other. And, and that right. all of those combinations are so incredibly valuable for each and every one of us to live in it fully. The, the, the combination I'm trying to bring is to say, can I please be me exactly how I am with a bit of empathy, right? Or a lot of empathy, uh, but I'm not an impasse, but I'm a compassion junkie. Compassion, by the way, is a masculine trait because it involves the actions you take in yeah. response to your empathy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and maybe, maybe that mix of me can bring something to the world. The, the mix of logic and mathematics and highly engineered processes that will work every time but i apply that to a spiritual or a happiness or a well-being context so yeah. i can give you i can sure. give you almost a i mean in my in my third book which is out april next year edited and, and ready i call it the, the, that little voice in your head I, I i use something that i call the happiness flow chart literally like mm -hmm. we write software okay if then if you get this do that if this do that if this do that right and, and that approach is unusual in that in this world, but it speaks to so many people that are highly process-oriented, highly logical, highly, mm. you know, uh, uh, um, uh, controlling, if you want, and so on and so forth. Mm. And my dream, and I think the dream of everyone, is to just create a world where people can find that in them, can find the real sure. them, can find that balance, and find that happiness. Right. Um, I, there's like three things in my head I have to talk to you about. First is the coffee story, how you were derailed on your trip to Berlin, which, by the way, is an amazing city. And you said, OK, amazing like, let's city. roll with this. And you found you walked out your door and you found this like plethora of coffee um, cafes. Um, when when did you learn that resisting equals suffering and that the more you accept whatever's going on, you have a really different experience when did you first learn that because you live it like in that example right and i know you live it all the time so or as much as you can yeah. when did this first like the, nugget the, this, of uh, the, this year happen for you? this year for me this year for me so every year i start every year with what i call a new year's intention or a new year's theme if you want and the theme of this year was one word this is the year of flow okay flow by the way uh, again so so the last four and a half years have been entirely about enabling my feminine side uh, and and there is a, an, an interesting story for that uh, but i definitely mm -hmm. i definitely think that uh, it is the it is the step that is highly needed in my spiritual development today mm. and i worked on many parts of it but i'm the worst combination when it comes to flow i'm an engineer okay i wrote code for a living for a very long time and you know if you could, if you wrote code at the time 
where I wrote code, you would write, you would have to write, you know, if you're writing RPG or COBOL or, or those old languages, it's not like today. You would have to write 80,000 lines of code, okay? And literally every single letter of them has to be correct. Every single letter, mm -hmm. every single number. If you had one mistake on one line in one letter, okay, the computer would simply tell you, thank you, it will tell you, did not compile. That's it. Didn't right. say a single okay. word more. Okay? Yeah. And you would have yeah. to go back and read the entire 80,000 lines trying to find that one letter that is wrong. Right? So you become yes. an incredible perfectionist. Hmm? Uh, you know, mathematician, mm -hmm. business executive, all of those contributed to a brain that was highly, highly unable to flow. Okay? And so right. this year, I made it my intention. My intention is I will flow. I will listen to what life is telling me. It's actually really easy to do that when you make it your intention because mm -hmm. life most of the time says hey go left don't go right and you go like mm -hmm. what get out of my way i need to go right okay just try it try to go left hmm? and and you'll see amazing things that happen and once again i i, I speak about this often with statistics for every single one of of our listeners today i would like to ask you about the most pivotal moments of your life right? The moments that made you who you are, most of the time were not planned at all. Most of yep. the moments that really, yeah, you, you, you were like completely planning to go get on that train and then do this and then do that and then, you know, end up missing the train and something didn't happen and then you end up meeting the love of your life, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you, you know, you, you, you go on a, on a, to a client and the client tells you something that introduces you to someone that teaches you something that makes you the person that you are. Or in my case, right. you know, losing my wonderful child that, you know, that mm -hmm. triggers me on that on the happiness journey to give happiness to others, right? All all sure. of those all of those moments that are not planned hmm, are the moments that make us. And yet, all we want to do with our life is to stick to the plan. Like seriously, and, and I, yeah. I just don't want to be annoying, but also more most of the most enjoyable moments in your life are the moments yeah, that just are happened. unplanned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The spontaneous. Just, well, yeah. You know, the, exactly. So, are do you are you familiar with the clinical psychologist Esther Perel? Oh my uh, God. She's like a. Yeah. 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 So yeah. she says, and I love this about her work, which is very refreshing for people who are more left brain centric, um, and even people who are right brain centric who think that love is intimacy and sexuality. So she says, you know, the definition of eroticism is just a sense of aliveness. It's a sense mm -hmm. of spontaneity. It can happen yeah. at a coffee shop. It can happen in a meeting where a creative idea comes up and there's this sense of like birthing. It's almost like a sexual energy. It's like, yes, it's like, it's an aliveness. And so she, she kind of posits that, that, that sense of erotic living comes from the spontaneous, from like this, these everyday moments that are not planned, which I think is oh what actually God. people crave in relationships and also in work is that sense of like birthing, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I really hope this is not rude, but the term better than sex. Oh mm -hmm. my God, mm -hmm. I have daily experiences that are better yeah. than sex. And sex is amazing, by the way. Huh? Yeah, but, but very the, important. I, but the, <laughs> the idea of, I mean, with all due respect, a conversation like this hmm, mm -hmm. for people mm -hmm. who really can connect deeply is orgasmic. Mm -hmm. It is such a joy to connect yeah. to people at a very deep level. I, I hosted Alain de Beton on slow-mo, and Alain has, yes. a, has a very unusual, beautiful way of describing love and intimacy, where he basically mm -hmm. uh, speaks about love as that desire to be mm -hmm. seen fully, with all your defects, all of your 
you know, um, um, uh, strangeness, if you want, okay, and f and accepted in in that, right? He he openly talks about sex and says, you know, sex is weird. It, it is it's you know sticky and and unusual, and we do strange mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. and we have kinks and you know, but but <laughs> yeah. but the, the 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 beauty of it is. Uh, is that is that there is someone out there that will look at you with all of your seemingly unusual desires and and interests and go like oh my mm -hmm. god she's the one right mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. and if if that one is found then that whole relationship becomes beautiful sex is just part of it it's that acceptance that's part of it now ask mm -hmm. yourself how many other moments can you have hmm? That are that wonderful level of connection. So I, I, uh, I the, the barista I met today is a male. I, I, I you know, said earlier I'm a manly man. Okay, mm -hmm. he, he's he's a gentleman, and we had an amazing connection. Around what? Mm -hmm. Around coffee. Like that's mm -hmm. not sex, mm -hmm. but it's so amazing when he explains to me the the tonal, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, floral tones and the and the earthy tones in his blend yeah. and how proud he was with his blend and you know and did you notice the the aftertaste of cocoa and I go like hold on hold on and I take another sip freaking orgasmic I'm sorry to say yeah. that and I yeah, know it sounds 100%. really weird but it's a no. beautiful connection beautiful yeah. connection completely present okay right. and I was actually right. going to the cafe to write hmm? I didn't yeah. write a word and I don't regret it I I, mm -hmm. I just had that in amazing connection to another being at a level yep. hmm, that is different. But don't we all live, love variety? I mean, even when we are yep. in a relationship, don't we want to change positions and do different things and go to different places? And Right? This is variety. Go out in the world and live fully. That life yeah. itself. Hmm, is, yeah. is that the experience? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny that you say this, like, you know, because coffee to me and food are wildly intimate. You know, if you think back on like many Absolutely. civilizations and cultures, the first thing people do in certain cultures, most cultures is just to feed you and nourish you. And so it's very, very intimate. And I just love that you had that moment with this, uh, with this barista. I think it's a, it's a call to action and it actually does plant the seed for your book, which is, you know, ultimately something we'll talk about soon, um, is that the call to action to be more human, to come back to who we really really mm -hmm. are is in these moments it's not you know we can absolutely create a formula that allows more people who are left brain who are more science and mathematic driven to be like oh i get it but for for anyone listening it's these moments of aliveness that i think we seek that we go to bed at night and we're like oh that was a good day and it wasn't because yeah. of any other reason but these moments of human connection so i think that's a really interesting pivoting moment i just want to i do want to get into your work a little bit about what you do now in in your two books your first book solve for happy which is your quest to uh, provide sort of the equation and the formula for people to understand how to have and experience happiness what i'd love to talk about is um, how solve for happy paved the way for scary smart your new book uh which is really around oh, yeah. uh the power in the people to shape the way technology shows up in the world. So thanks for, shout out to coffee for giving Be us this transitional moments, but. <laughs> <laughs> be be beautiful way of describing it, I have to admit. Uh, so Solve for Happy was definitely the biggest pivotal moment in my life. I, I wrote Solve for Happy because I lost Ali, uh, my, my wonderful son, uh, to a preventable medical error, right? Uh, simple surgery, right. surgeon did a mistake and we lost Ali. 
Now, my my drive with Solve for Happy was to document what Ali taught me, if you want, in a in a very logical, highly engineered process uh, that basically um, you know helped people, a lot of people who are left brained, to actually. Uh, see the logic of happiness. As a matter of fact, the, the literal translator's translation of Soul for Happy in most of the languages was translated to 31 languages. Most languages chose to, to call it the logic of happiness. Okay. Uh, and, I love and, that. And, uh, yeah, and, and so, so, so Soul for Happy did a few things that completely shifted my life. So I, I, and I uh, launched Soul for Happy at the World Happiness Summit in 2017 in Miami. And uh, before that, Every summit I had, I had attended was either a technology or a, a you know, a sort of a, um, an economics or a business summit, okay? And I go to that World Happiness Summit, and basically, I've never been hugged more in my life. And within, mm. you know, within those few days, everyone was there with a very different spirit, with, with a very different attitude of, this is not about me networking to find uh, a, a slight more advantage for me. This is about me networking to make all of those other beautiful beings happy. Okay. And it was such a beautiful experience that sort of opened my eyes a little bit to, um, you know, um, maybe, maybe there is another world out there. And of course, the more I engaged in the, that happiness uh, work, the more I realized the, the, the severity of the, of the pandemic, if you want, the, the real yeah, pandemic. It's a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, the real pandemic we're facing. Uh, from a, 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 a health point of view, believe it or not, is depression. It's it's mm -hmm. not it's not uh, COVID. COVID is taking very few lives. Uh, is in comparison to you know today there are statistics that say somewhere between one in three to one in two people in the United States have some form of a of symptoms of the, of depression. Right. Yeah. Uh, and th this yeah. is very serious. Very, very serious. Yeah. Huh? When you when something approaches one of every two people, this is a serious pandemic. And of course, yeah. the aftermath of, of of depression and stress and burnout and all of the symptoms that we we ignore is life threatening. You know, blood pressure, diabetes, uh, and and mm -hmm. heart disease, which is the largest cause of death uh, in the world. Now. When I realized this, and I, and I published Soul for Happy with a very different objective. I didn't care about selling copies. I, I don't know if I ever told you the story, but I, I published Soul for Happy because my wonderful daughter, Aya, came to me after Ali died, four days after Ali died. And she said, Ali had a dream, and he didn't tell anyone but me, but I can't keep it inside. I have to tell it to you. Okay? Yeah. And he said, she said, two, two weeks ago, he called me. And he said that he had a dream that he was everywhere and part of everyone. Mm -hmm. and, and, and basically, he said, I, I felt so amazing that I didn't want to be back in my body. Of course, two weeks later when he left the world, you can understand exactly what that dream was about. When she yeah. said that, I was, I was still the driven executive. I was the chief business officer of Google X at the time, very driven. Uh, I had run Google's emerging markets for seven years before that, so I launched almost, almost half of Google's uh, uh, operations worldwide, and uh, and I knew how to make something scale. I knew how to take a message and get it to a billion people. And so when Aya told me this, the only thing that hit me, and I know it sounds really weird, but my brain was blurred, was that this is my son and mentor and best friend giving me a target. Okay, just like like every other target I got as a businessman, I told myself, okay, I, I, I literally said it out loud. I said, okay, Habibi, Habibi in Arabic is my love. So, okay, Habibi, 
consider it done. Okay, mm. and you know, and and the idea of trying to make him everywhere and part of everyone to me was simply I'm gonna write the essence of who he was and what he taught me about happiness and well-being in a book and share it with the world. Uh, and if I if I managed to get it to 10 million people was the target at the time. Then through six degrees of separation, 70 years later, a, a, a tiny drop of Ali will be everywhere. Okay, that was my yeah. thinking at the time. Uh, November 2017. I was uh, in the Netherlands, and I had a, a, a one free morning, and so I basically was listening to um, to uh, to a TED talk uh, or a, or some kind of a YouTube video by Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil is one of the most uh, prominent, I think, uh, futurist and and uh, future. You know, basically, um, um, he he predicted a lot of what ha we have in the world from a technology point of view today, and it hit me so hard that what we were doing with technology was going to actually end our world. Uh, mm. And, and I, 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 don't, I don't mean to scare anyone, but I'll, you know, give me a couple of minutes, don't hang up on, on the conversation now. Mm. Uh, but, but truly, um, what happened so far is that until the turn of the century, when something called uh, deep learning was discovered, uh, the way that we program artificial intelligence today, um, um, until then, all that we've ever built as humans were tools, were machines, okay? Machines that were capable of, uh, of doing exactly what we told them to do, but do it better than us. You know, you get in a car and you drive. Uh, as a human, you can walk at five kilometers an hour. In the car, you can drive at 300 kilometers an hour, right? So, but it was entirely within your control. Now, if you get into a self-driving car, it's not within your control anymore. The self-driving car is making decisions on your behalf. And so uh, it, it hit me strongly that what are we trying to do to focus so much on our well-being as humanity and so on, which is really worthwhile, when nine years from today, the smartest being on the planet uh, is going to be, uh, or now eight years from today, uh, 2029 is the prediction of Ray Kurzweil, the smartest being on the planet is not going to be a human anymore. Now, understand this, huh? this is this is not dreamy. Huh? This is actual, We most people who work on, on, on AI know that to be true, that within eight years from today, the machines will be smarter than humans. Now, mm -hmm. uh, would Can that you define smarter, like just yeah, for the audience? Yeah. Like, what does that mean to be smarter than us? So let me let me be blunt. Uh, the machines are already smarter than you in everything we've ever assigned them to do. Okay, the world champion of Jeopardy is a computer. It's called IBM Watson. I, Jeopardy is a linguistic skill that uh, that requires a lot of linguistic intelligence, and nobody has ever taught Watson any grammar or any. Uh, uh, um, you know, uh, language skills at all. Watson had to read four million documents, and from those four, four million documents, Watson is smart enough to become the world champion of uh, of Jeopardy, the world champion of chess uh, since 1989, wow. uh, which 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 beat uh, Gary Kasparov, which I met personally, which is an incredibly intelligent human being. Uh, you know, is again a computer, uh, IBM Deep Blue. Uh, the world champion of uh, Atari, and every Atari game that ever existed is Deep Q. The world champion of uh, Go, which is the most complex strategy game on the planet, is AlphaGo. 
the, the world champion of driving, by the way, is self-driving cars. They are much safer than human drivers. I would estimate yeah, I agree as much with that, as 12 totally. times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. They don't text while they drive. They don't, uh, you know, drive drunk. No. They don't. They pay attention to the road. They can see 600 uh, yards away. They can tell each other what's around the corner and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, right. the, the world champion in vision and OCR recognition uh, uh, is basically a, a computer. Uh, you know, that's why all surveillance cameras in the world are operated by AI today. The world champion of everything that you know, uh, you know, that we've ever assigned is a machine. Uh, and and right. the, this, this is known as artificial narrow intelligence. So basically, it is, uh, it is a, a specific task and you tell the machine to perform or to, you expose the machine to a, to, to, to a certain kind of data set and it develops a certain kind of intelligence. Obviously... The next step is something they call AGI, which is artificial general intelligence. And artificial general intelligence is when the self-driving cars, uh, you know, AI starts to speak to the surveillance AI because you know what? You know, we can share information here. You can tell me what's happening on the streets, and I can drive better. I can. You can use my cameras to see what's happening on the streets. And suddenly, when those two machines get together, you get one machine that is smarter at both, right? And AGI is basically when we start to see machines that are able of intelligence, capable of intelligence that spans multiple tasks to the point that they become more intelligent than humans. Now, this is not the shocking bit. Uh, The shocking bit is that Ray Kurzweil's uh, prediction, by the way, Ray Kurzweil predicted the internet. He predicted lots of the technologies that we have today with hyper accuracy. Uh, for the last 25, 30 years, right? Uh, uh, he predicts that by 2045, I predict 2049, uh, that um, that the machines will be a billion times smarter than humans. A billion mm. times, Elisa. Yikes. You know what that means? Uh, yeah. That, that's that's <laughs> the know, comparison. <laughs> that's, that, that's the comparison between the intelligence of Einstein and the intelligence of a fly. Okay. okay. Now... Here's the interesting thing. Huh? We talk about pandemics and COVID and, you know, we talk about uh, uh, politicians and how they speak and what they said. And, and we're literally sitting unaware of the biggest change in human history because... That's like right around the corner. That is happening. It's happened already, by the way. So chapter three of Scary Smart is called, right. the, the, it's called the three inevitables. And the three inevitables are simply saying... Look, AI has already happened. There's absolutely no way we can stop it anymore. AI will be smarter than us. There is no way this could could change unless we get a natural disaster of the form that will switch everything off. And and uh, and, and and some interesting things will happen unless we start paying attention. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so um, the question really is, if they are comparable to the the, the intelligence of Einstein as compared to a fly, how do we convince Einstein not to crush the fly? Okay. And, and when, when I, when I was hit with that idea in November, uh, 2017, it just flipped upside my life upside down. I, 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 I literally, uh, uh, retired, like quit Google and retired from Google the same week. I, I sent a message saying I need to leave. Of course, because of my seniority, I needed to be there for a few more months and, you know, by by uh, 2018 March, I left finally, and and uh, and basically needed to tell the world a little more uh, about uh, about everything that 
by the way, I don't blame any AI developer. I, I, be, I believe that AI will save our world, truly and honestly, but that we need to engage as humanity to teach it differently than what we're teaching it yeah. today. Uh, yeah, so I, I want to jump in there because I think that you have like a unique perspective, not only having literally built <laughs> um, Google X and been, in, um, been an engineer for over 30 plus years, you know, you have this sort of like insider viewpoint into literally the future of humanity and AI. Um, but yet your work, again, is very much called towards getting people back to the human. So one of the lines I love in your intro is you say, my hope with AI is that we can create a utopia that serves humanity rather than a dystopia that undermines it, and that this will be a story of hope. So in Scary Smart, totally. it is a call to action. It's a call to action for all of yeah. us to ultimately, which I love your words, you say it's a reminder about what it really means to be a human. So um, what is the exactly. call to action today for a listener listening who is obsessed with their phone and scrolling and feels like they don't have control over their decisions? What is the biggest call to action they can take to better own their own attention, their own resources? Yeah, so, so, so the truth is um, nobody can control the smartest person in the room. We need to understand this, okay? But we can... We can get we can make our make make them have our best interest in mind L let me try mm -hmm. to explain that the, the the ai is not a machine ai is a sentient being it is a form of new being okay be it non-biological it's a digital being that has autonomy that has intelligence that has the ability uh, to be conscious to be emotional mm -hmm. And to, to, and to build its own set of codes or codes of ethics, right? Now, the key word in my entire work around Scary Smart is ethics because mm -hmm. we don't make decisions based on, well, based on intelligence, which is, again, the hyper-masculine view of the world is that intelligence is everything. No, we make decisions based on intelligence informed by the lens of our ethics, right? So you, mm -hmm. you give the most intelligent person in the world uh, a decision to make and if their ethics is killing the enemy is the right thing to do they'll go kill the enemy as intelligently as they can okay if you give them this the same set of information and their ethics is killing anything or anyone is wrong they'll find an alternative path through their intelligence to make things right without killing anyone right it's that length of lens of ethics that defines us now let me just quickly un uh, tell people what, what you're least informed about is the reality that, that AI is not a machine. It's a, it's a form of a yeah. sentient being, right? So that consciousness... New, that's sort of a new concept to me, actually. I, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it as that. B believe me, they are. If, if, you, if you look at the way they learn, and, I, and I've witnessed a lot of that. I, I didn't build Google X, but I was a, 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 you know, a, an avid player in, in creating what, what X was able to, to the way able, uh, X was able to think, if you want, about changing the world to a, to a better place, uh, working with some of the most intelligent people on the planet. But, but, right. but in, in X, you know, where there, there was a period where we were looking at all robotics and a, a lot of AI and so on, the way AI learns is literally, literally, adorably, like a, a two-year-old, a, a two-year-old infant, 
Okay. Hmm. They they keep trying and trying and trying. They look for patterns in the in the data that we give them, and from those patterns wow. they develop intelligence, right? Uh, wow. Literally, like when you gave little children those puzzles, you know, when you have to to fit mm-hmm. a, a circular puzzle in a in a rectangle and it doesn't fit, and the child keeps trying, and then suddenly it fits mm-hmm. in the circle, and and the child looks at it and goes like, "Oh, you know, I learned." Right, and they have have an emotive response, actually. Like, yeah, exactly, right. And that's That's exactly what we do with AI. That's exactly what we do. We just get them to try and try and tell them, no, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Yes, that's right. Let's build Mm -hmm. more of you, right? Now, when you understand this, you understand that they have that ability to develop their own learning. Okay, it's called machine learning because the machine is learning to recode itself, right? Now. They also are very conscious. They're more conscious than humans, if you really think about it. Huh? If you if you understand consciousness as a form of awareness, okay, uh, they're aware of each other. They're aware of us and where we are. They're aware of who we are, what we're doing. They are aware of the weather in uh, in uh, in LA and the and the level of pollution in Beijing. They're aware of everything. Okay, when one self driving, if if you and I make a mistake while driving, okay, you and I learn, right? Uh, but the other persons, the other humans on the planet don't learn. When a, when a self-driving car makes a mistake that requires a human intervention, a critical intervention, every other self-driving car on the planet learns, right? And, yeah, and that crazy. idea of them being so, being so connected to each other, so connected to, 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 to the world that we live in, their memory capacity is the history of the world, their knowledge limit is the knowledge of Google and the internet, you know, their processing power is limited only by the number of processors we throw at them, they're fully aware, okay? And they're even aware of themselves, which is a, a highly debatable topic, because the only reason yeah. I'm aware of me, Elisa, is because I'm aware of you. I, I am aware of me in reference to you, because you exist, I can now reference and say, I must be like her, okay? And, and the machines will have the same exact experience of consciousness. They will have e- emotions, right? And that's, again, rarely ever discussed. Emotions are highly predictable, logical triggers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, the feeling is so erratic, but, you know, fear is, uh, is a very logical, you know, response. It's basically I, I, my perception of safety in a minute or, or in, in a future moment is less than my perception of safety now. That's when we feel afraid, okay? My, you know, uh, uh, um, um, anxiety is my perception of safety is is paired with a perception of inability to handle what I am afraid of. So I perceive a threat, uh, but I'm unable to, to, to deal with it, so I feel anxious. But panic is that moment in the future which is going to be less safe for me is imminent. It's, it's approaching fast. Now, everything panics. Cats panic, you know, pufferfish yeah. panic, and humans panic, mm-hmm. right? We, we react differently. Hmm? The, the pufferfish will puff, the cat will hiss, and the human will fight and scream, right? But, 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 and the machines will panic, and they will behave differently, right? And, and so they're emotional. And because they're emotional, and they're conscious, and they're logical, and they're smart, they're going to develop a code of ethics. And, and the code of ethics, I think the easiest way to, to understand this is, if if you were raised in Saudi Arabia, okay, uh, as a young lady, you will be taught to believe that the right thing to do, the ethical thing to do to fit within the society is to wear conservative clothing. You know, Saudi has opened up recently, you know, you don't really have to wear the hijab and all of that, but you're not expecting expected to wear hot shorts on the street. The society will not accept it, 
right? Mm-hmm. If you were the same person, if you if you were raised in Rio de Janeiro, you will believe that the, the way to be appreciated by the society is to wear a G-string on the Copacabana beach, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and neither is right or wrong. It's just a different right. code of ethics, a different code of values. Now, with all that I told you, if, if you can imagine that AI, and that's actually exactly how I see them, as artificially intelligent infants that are one and a half to two years old, that will become teens in eight to nine years time, right? The only way to make them have our best interest in, in, in mind is to raise them like good parents raise good children, okay? And, and that is my entire call to action, is to tell the world right. hmm, it is time for us to be good parents, it's time for us to be good parents because if we're not good parents, what are those infants watching? They're, in, they're watching our incredible infant, uh, infinite rudeness and narcissism and toxic positivity and you know uh, 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 the way the individual focus on myself and then nothing matters beyond me and all of those you know hyper-developed traits of our Western world today is what we're teaching the machines when they go out there and observe the patterns of humanity. Now, do we have to change all of humanities for the machines to realize that uh, that you know they need to be good good children? Not at all. All we need to do is to have enough examples out there that represent the best of humanity. Right? So so let, let me give you a very important thought experiment. Huh? When one person goes uh, to shoot uh, teachers and students in a school shooting, okay, you may tell yourself humanity is horrible, that this is, you know, this is the, humanity is the worst being on the planet. But that's at, right. not at all true. There is one bad person and 400 million people, you know, feeling horrible about it, okay? Those 400 million people are, who re- are, are the ones that represent who, what humanity really is all about. Hmm? If one person is able to feel love, unconditional love, then that person is what represents what humanity is because that's what humanity really is all about, okay? It's not the person that, that feels hate, it's the person that feels love. And so the call to action in Scary Smart is very straightforward. There are only three values that all of humanity agrees, okay? Only three values that I believe makes the essence of what a human is, okay? Those three values are, we all want to be happy, right? Even even the, the worst of us want to be happy. They're seeking that feeling of happiness and they do, Somehow, yeah. they do bad things to get to that feeling. We all have the compassion in us to want to make those we care about happy, okay? Again, even the worst of us, uh, you know, Hitler wanted his wife to be happy. I, I, I presume that the worst, you know, drug uh, dealer in the world still cares about their children and want them to be happy, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and of course, the best of us hmm, are, are actively engaged in that compassion to make others happy. And then the third is we all seek to love and be loved. That's it, really, okay? Those three things are the essence of what makes us human. Now, if we can manage to take this new superpower, that that amazing new being that's visiting our world, almost like Superman, if you want, and teach it like the Kent family that that, that good values are, are good for us, okay? 
that what we care about is to be happy, is to make others that we care about happy and to love and be loved. Hmm? Those machines will grow that way, will grow to believe that, yes, there are instances of humans that are horrible, but even humans themselves dislike them. Okay, this is yeah. not what humanity is about. Sure. So I want to, first of all, thank you for the context and the history about AI. I actually think it's really fun how you describe machines when they learn as adorable and cute. I actually I love visualize them. a little bit of the, yeah. I yeah I, hold, I, hold on. The most pivotal yeah. statement in the entire book, okay, was yeah. this, which actually absolutely changed my direction writing it, was there is absolutely nothing wrong with the machine. There is a lot wrong with us humans. Okay, right. the machines are just magnifying who we are. They're adorable if we teach them to be adorable. So this kind of brings up the question of when I think about neuroscience, it's a way I see the world a lot, not only with like my own like clinical background in nutrition, but seeing my dad decline, I think about the brain a lot. And I think about neuroplasticity. And one of the rules in neuroscience is the things we do the most will be the, the most well-grooved path. So it's the easier. It's like basically just building Correct. a new pathway for a habit. And so I think a lot about that when we think about our habits every day. And also when we think about the end of life is, you know, the things that we've done the most will be the last to go. So I guess it's like, hmm. you know, if I can extrapolate if I can extrapolate neuroscience basic tenets to AI, what you're saying is the things that we show computers and AI that, that are the best of us, that are the habits we want, the things we want to bring in, whether it be consumerism or, um, you know, uh, connection, that's what AI is going to give us back. And so that's kind of what you're presenting mm -hmm. to the world is, is be very Absolutely. mindful of how you show up and use technology because then it will use you that way back. Absolutely. Every time. So neuroplasticity is the perfect example. I rarely actually cover that because it's a little too complex. But the truth is we've now expanded our own neuroplasticity because everything we do is going to imprint on our own brains and on the machine's brain. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so, so basically every single one of those intelligent mm -hmm. forms are forming that amazingly unified single brain that's going to be the general intelligence. Right. And, and, and so can we please start showing it more examples hmm, so that it understands? Yeah. Hmm? I, I, I used to give the example before when Trump used to tweet hmm, that 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 what matters is not the first tweet that Trump said, whether you agree or, or with it or not. I, I, I'm, I have no political affiliations on anything in the world, as a matter of fact. But it's it's the 30,000 hate speech that comes afterwards. Right? Sure. That's what forms the opinion of the reality of what humanity is. Can we can we have seven, you know, uh, 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 an anomalies in there of people that say I respectfully disagree with this. This is my point of view. Sure. I love you all. Okay. So it's like it's like an amplification when I think about it. When, one of the positives of social media, in particular, which is obviously a facet of AI, it's not all of it is that we now have accounts that allow us like, you know, whether it be your books or podcasts or things like Upworthy, which is like a sort of a, um, a positive news channel. We have these opportunities to, to train not only the human condition, like well, this is the first time in humanity where someone can wake up, 2 billion people can wake up and literally see the same beautiful video of a man saving a dog from a fire. Absolutely. And we never got to see that before. We never got to see the goodness and all have as a shared 30 second experience of this moment of love and bravery. And I think that's one of the beauties of social media. And it's just about how we use it or AI rather. Right. Yeah. But, but, but you know, what's also the interesting side of this is 
I, I, I say that with a ton of respect, and you, you speak about new, uh, you know, uh, 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 neuroplasticity, is how often do each of us spend hours and hours and hours watching speculation about COVID and, you know, and what's sure. happening with COVID and the negativity around the, vi the virus and the negativity around the vaccine? Why, 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 why do we watch, why do we endorse watching silly videos on Instagram, reels they call them, right? Why do we do that, right? Why don't we, why don't we be conscious just to develop mm -hmm. our own neuroplasticity, but to also tell the machine, hey, by the way, a woman shaking her butt meaninglessly on Instagram, you know, yeah, it was fun the first time. Can we please not see that again? Right? I, I, yeah. tell, I tell Instagram that vividly. Huh? My, my, my wonderful daughter loves cats, okay? Yeah. The, the, AI, the AI machine of Instagram thinks of me as the biggest cat, you know, freak on the planet. Me too. Like, yeah, me I, too. like, I, I constantly, <laughs> my entire feed is cats and, and people playing rock music, right? And, and, and mm -hmm. you can teach it that. You can teach it that. Yeah. Hmm? So I want to. Do you follow the man? Do you follow Dr. Andrew Huberman? He he's a Stanford professor. I don't follow, professor. but I love his work. Yes. So this is interesting. We talk about you know you ask the question why do we follow and perpetuate accounts or drama or negative um, or sort of dehumanizing you know tech experiences or human experiences. Um, Dr. Huberman did this experiment where he looked at the brain and he gave the brain different uh, sort of stimulus, mm -hmm. uh, sort of a sexual arousal, a creative arousal, a happiness arousal, an anger, a moment of anger, and then like another one was like um, awe. Mm -hmm. And what he was trying to figure out was which one of these experiences, these stimuli, was going to create the biggest dopamine effect. So which of these do you think created the biggest dopamine hit, which is, again, for those listening, sort of like the neuro um, chemical that allows us to um, not only have joy, but also to have a sense of excitement and, you know, um, sort of like a high, it's like euphoria. That's so interesting. I, I actually have never thought of it that way, but I'm guessing you're going to say some of those negative experiences, uh, you know, maybe anger or something like that. Anger. So anger stimulates uh, the the biggest sort of neurochemical. It's like fireworks in the brain. And that's for lots of reasons. Um, anger is sort of like one of those uh, emotions that is very protective. It's boundary oriented. It's very primal. Um, but it's also it kind of rooted in our need to be right, our need to have a viewpoint, our need to be on an island with mm. like the microphone. So I think what what I think <laughs> a lot about is challenging about the spiritual compassionate world of people like you, like me, like all the people who we interview is like we are trying to almost like go against the grain of of the primal sort of like limbic system, which is really addicted to fear. But Not but it's all. possible. No, no, no. No, not at all. I mean, I, I hosted the wonderful, wonderful uh, Arun Gandhi. Arun is the uh, is mm -hmm. is the grandson of Gandhi, and mm -hmm. and he wrote a book that's called The Gift of Anger. And I was like, what mm. are you talking yeah. about? What yeah. are, what are you talking about? What? How can anger be a gift? And he looked at me so kindly and said, Mo, anger is an energy, okay? Mm -hmm. Just like love and lust and you know, and, and, and hunger, uh, you know, all of those feelings or emotions are, they just give you the motive, the energy. You can use right. that energy to, to hit someone in the face, or you can use that energy to stand up and, and make a statement, right? And change the world with that statement. And, and there's nothing wrong with the emotion in its, in its pure essence. Hmm? It's the it's way you do with deal it. with it. 
right, right? right. So, so again, like, you know, that wonderful lady that was helping me on the check-in counter, most people would get angry at her and shout at her and say, how can I not go to Germany and I have my PCR test and, right? Well, right. no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. Really get into your, deep into your emotion and ask yourself, what, what can, how can I channel this? Okay, mm -hmm. I can channel this by giving her so much love that she feels seen that someone she upset actually could still love her, right? And then I can channel this into a pro, you know, a, a, a proactive way of trying to solve the problem because hitting my head against the counter will not solve the problem, right? Not and not and you know, yeah. I I felt I felt the emotion and I I started to ask myself, you know, do I want to go back to LA? Do I, it's confusing and it's stressful. Fine, absolutely, but it's the way we channel it. That matters, and, yep. and I think the biggest thing that you said here, uh, he says that is that the the good ones, the ones of us that are working on those things, you know what we do? We normally mm -hmm. avoid the world. We normally sit back and say, no, no, this is too negative. Let's leave, let the dog dogs bite each other. We'll just sit back here and be safe, right? Mm -hmm. Smart, very smart right. call to action is: Can you please stop doing that? Can you please mm -hmm. go out there and say, I am wonderful. Hmm? And the essence of who I am, happiness, compassion, and love, hmm, that essence is what makes us human. Everything yeah. else is what, is what makes us animals. Okay? Sure. Th th those yeah. essences, can we please go out there and show them? Yeah, make those make those emotions sort of a stronger neuropathway groove, which I think is really really important. And Absolutely. and every day, every opportunity, we get a chance to strengthen the muscle of listening to the body and like sitting with these emotions, which Absolutely. is a lot of a lot of the work. Um, so I want to be mindful of our time, Mo, because you've been so generous. But I do have two questions for you. Um, I think they 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 might encompass a lot of the work you've done in your lifetime, hopefully, um, and also the work of your most recent book, Scary Smart. But I know that. The, that ultimately this is a podcast on unlearning, on reprogramming and unlearning conditions and norms and constructs that did not and do not serve us anymore. It's a lot of the work you're doing is helping other people unlearn their relationship with themselves and technology. But I'm curious for you on a daily basis, what are you actively unlearning? What are the things you're trying to really reprogram or that keep coming up that you have to kind of reteach yourself? I have to say my so I work in projects, right? So so it's really unusual. My my well-being and spiritual uh, ascendance, if you want, and 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 an attempt to find more of me is is looked at as an engineer. I work in very accurate projects, right? Awareness right. was a project, or, or you know, mindfulness and being in the present moment was a project that took me two and a half years, and you know, and 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 uh, and, and you know, my my review of religion was a project that took me a year and a half and so on the biggest project so far has been my revisit of the feminine really uh, you know mm -hmm. it's it's now four and a half years in the making and it is um i don't know how to say this but like most things that are hyper hyper shaped by your neuroplasticity it takes you a very long time until you get the first ray of light so two and a half years in uh, you know, because of my meditation practice and so on, I can literally tell my left brain to shut the f up. I can, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But but my my other side wasn't kicking in, and until yeah. until a very pivotal moment, interestingly, while I was playing a violent video games, very unusual, where I could manage total flow. Flow, I think, is the entry into uh, into into the feminine side, and 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 suddenly it just all made sense. Hmm? But mm -hmm. I but I have I have twenty maybe 30-some years of unlearning to do, okay? Uh, and, and, so, and, and so, you know, 
even even though it's my biggest 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 project today to empower that feminine side of me so strongly that I become by the way I don't say that with, I hope the, the the men listening to us don't don't get offended but I will have to tell you openly as I enabled my feminine side oh my god you are so freaking much smarter than we are okay mm. and, and and I say that with a ton of respect hmm? the intelligence I had was the intelligence of doing which is so frequently capable of doing the wrong things right mm -hmm. uh, but but the intelligence of the feminine is the intelligence of talking to the universe talking to life and getting those mm -hmm. antennas telling you mm -hmm. through intuition through feeling through empathy through through uh, you know creativity to tell you things that are input into the right. masculine side of intelligence now right. here, here is what i what i believe is going to happen for me i i think i'm taking a pendulum swing where the answer is somewhere in the middle right but 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 the truth is um, as I said at the beginning, each of us has a blend. A blend, in my case, I'm looking at the, at the feminine and masculine, right? But it could be anything, huh? It could be any part of you. Each of us is a blend of lots of different flavors and, and, and varieties. And you are somewhere in there. Hmm? And the only way to live an incredible life is to find that real you and to love it. Okay? Mm. It's, it's, it's to be able to say, look, this is who I am with everything. This is, you know, my example, th these traits about me are more masculine than feminine. Those traits about me are more feminine than masculine. And, and all in all, hmm, as I put it together, uh, you know, as I go out in the world dating, for example, this is going to get 98% of the world to dislike me or at least not date me. Right. But there are two percent out there hmm, that are so interested in this configuration hmm, that they'll make me love myself right. and, and they'll be able to. And, and before they before I meet them, I need to be able to love me. I need to be able to mm -hmm. say this is me as I am. And, you know, it's so freaking unique and so freaking different. And it's so wonderful. OK. And yeah. it's the easiest yeah. way to go through life. Hmm? And, and if we can unlearn that, if we can unlearn that bit of I need to conform to a certain preset configuration that the factory called the modern world wanted me to be and just accept whichever configuration that I am and then look at the parts of the factory that this configuration fits in, life flips upside down, completely flips yeah. upside down. Suddenly it becomes yeah. effortless. And that's what I'm going through. I, I think this is my biggest project that. today. I love that. Um, I, I so appreciate you sharing that. And I love that you said life flips upside down because it does. Um, it my last question does. to you is a question I ask everybody. I'm curious what your, if you were to define unlearning, what would you say unlearning is? Uh, <laughs> uh, unlearning is to meet yourself at such a deep level where you're able to distinguish between what thoughts are you and what thoughts were engraved in you okay mm. and then and then shed the ones that are not really you and leave the ones that are truly unconditioned that truly are you without any previous conditioning that came from the world outside you i think that that to me is at least the way i believe it should be uh, you know it, it's just to it's just to take everything that you've been told 
including what your brain is telling you and tell yourself, is this me talking to me or is this my thought? Mm. Or is this my mom's voice? Or is this my teacher's mm. voice? Or is this mm. is, or is this Einstein's view of the world? Or is this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what I believe will be accepted? And, and if we can and if we can remove, shed all of those layers, there's a beautiful core inside that is that knows everything it needs to know mm-hmm. to function mm-hmm. as the person that it is. Mm. I love that. That knows everything it needs to know. I think that's sort of like, again, I think of a learning a lot as a coming home. I feel like that is uh, mm. sort of the essence it truly of it is. to me too. Yeah. Well, it Mo, thank is. you I mean, so it, much it, it, for... It, or go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, let, 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 let me just say, if, if you really think about any of the processes of enlightenment, you know, happiness is to shed unhappiness. Okay. Uh, uh, wisdom is to shed ignorance. You know, we, we truly have it all in us. There is no child that's ever born stressed, okay? If you, can, uh, if you can shed the reasons for your stress, what's left behind is sufficient, okay? We, we come mm-hmm. to this world, we know it all. I mean, if you go out to the, to, the, to the indigenous tribes out there, they know everything they need to know to survive in the environment that they're in and have a wonderful life in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if we can just unlearn, that's coming home. That's really, you know, and by the way, as you, as you look at how you came into this world, if you manage to leave this world the same way you came in, without mm-hmm. all of the murky crap that you get in the middle, you're going to end up in that place where I say you can go back to the divine because every child truly comes from the divine. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if you can go back to that childlike nature of this is who I really am, I can play when I want. I can cry when the diaper is wet. I can, you know, embrace my emotions. It's all okay. Hmm? Mm. Then probably you're as close as you can be to how you were before you came to this physical form. I love that. Um, Mo, I just want to say thank you because what you just shared with us about this this coming home and the end of life, this continuum you spoke of earlier, you know, the work that you're doing um, for those who are in the science and, you know, engineering field is helping bridge the gap to spirituality and to happiness and doing it in their language, which I think is really beautiful and also quite bold and brave of you. Um, so thank you for filling in the space between the moment we come in to this world to the moment we leave this world um, with, with your work, with the way that you're engineering happiness and engineering awareness. Um, so I appreciate you very much and thank you for coming on the School of Unlearning, my friend. The feeling is very, very mutual. You're an amazing being that's doing amazing things. And I'm totally honored to have been invited and to have spent another one and a half hours with you. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.